The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Each business is unique and operated individually of others in the same industry. What they have in common is the potential path to success. Welcome to The Second Stage with your hosts, Jeffrey Cadlick and Brendan Anderson. In today's program, we'll address the obstacles that many businesses find on that path to success and discuss what entrepreneurs and their businesses are doing to stay ahead of the curve. Now, here's Brendan Anderson and Jeffrey Cadlick. Welcome, 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 everybody, to The Second Stage. Jeff, I'm really excited. We have an exciting guest. We haven't you and I haven't been uh, on the on the on the airwaves for quite some time. I'm excited to kind of be back in the saddle. Yeah, we have not been on the airwaves in a long time, and and it's exciting to get our first show in a while with our good friend Gary Conco. Hey, Gary, how are you? Very good. How are you doing, Jeff Brennan? We're we're doing great. Uh, our show today, folks, is uh, something that's near and dear to Evolution's heart, which is around the sustained growth of uh, of businesses and and growing jobs here, uh, uh, in in small businesses. And uh, Mr. Kunkel, uh, when we got started about ten Dr. years ago, Kunkel. he Doctor Kunkel. Oh, Come on. Doctor, that's Doc- right. He's Hello, really smart. Doctor. Hello, Doctor. The good doctor. The good doctor is really smart, and he really kind of got a lot of uh, uh, educated Brendan and I, and, and got us started down this path of including some of his thoughts in our underwriting and how we work with companies today. And uh, we still think he's got a lot of great things to say. and want to make sure that our audience had a chance to learn a lot of the things that we've learned over the years from, from the good doctor, Kunkel. Well, thank you very much. Yeah, we, I should first start off and say that my seven-year-old uh, son says that I'm I'm only a doctor of paper, <laughs> and lots of numbers, and lots and of numbers, numbers, Gary. Lots and lots and lots of numbers. Well, if it makes you feel any better, uh, neither Brennan or or our doctor. So um, you're you're ahead of us, I guess. Not even a. Paper, not even a paper. Well, it's this is exciting. This is exciting because we've known, like you said, Jeff. We've known uh, Dr. Conkle for a long, long time, and, and and the research he's been doing really, uh, it, it, it's it's it's. Uh, I guess we like it especially because it kind of validates some of the things that we're running around trying to say. But we actually, you know, deep down, we really believe it. And uh, maybe, uh, uh, Gary, tell us a little bit about your background because you know it's always interesting to see how people end up being paper doctors. Yeah, I'm gonna. I'm gonna. You tell it, Gary, and then I'll compare it to the official bio that I have in my hand. Jeff, why don't you roll with it? Why don't you, you Jeff, you roll with it? I apologize. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I'm always trying to get good airtime, Brennan. So I'd rather talk about Gary than let Gary talk about Gary. You can give me my ADHD medicine today, so I'm gonna have to <laughs> go ahead. 
So uh, Dr. Gary Kunkel is the founder of Outlier LLC and a research fellow at the Business Dynamics Research Consortium based at the University of Wisconsin at, at Madison. Uh, Dr. Gary Kunkel is a leading expert on the drivers and impact of sustained growth for businesses and regional economies. He is the founder of Outlier LLC, as I had mentioned, which is a consultancy that serves corporate and government clients related to economic research and strategy and the research fellow at Business Dynamics, which I just mentioned. Gary's current and past clients include uh, Symantec, uh, Principal Financial Group, GE Capital's National Center for the Middle Market, Entrepreneur Magazine, Summit Professional Networks, as well as the states of Virginia, Louisiana, Pennsylvania, and Michigan. Gary has worked with more than 1,000 companies on international expansion projects in 34 countries around the world. He lives in Charlotte, North Carolina. Glad to have you, Gary. I think we knew most of that. Yeah. Gary, tell us how how, we we love, obviously, Jeff and I have had the privilege of getting to know you over the last, God, was it Jeff, five, four, five, six years? years and um and, and, and are just always amazed at the research that you that you're doing and 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 so forth but you know before we get into the research which is which we love how did, how did how did this come to pass tell us about the tell us about your background well my background really is uh, helping companies uh, enter into foreign markets that's i did that for the first 20 years or so of my career um i worked as uh as a practice leader, senior manager at KPMG in Washington in the International Trade and Investment Services Group, um, helping companies go all over the world. And then um, after after that, uh, I ran the state of Maryland's European office uh, out of uh, the Netherlands for about a decade and worked with hundreds and hundreds of companies doing foreign direct investment projects and export projects, et cetera. And um, really sort of the path that I'm on now began with the field work that I did uh, um, in, in the past at KPMG and over in Europe. Um, I had, um, you know, for all of the clients that I've always served, they've wanted to intercept companies when they're at the point of growth. I think that that's a common desire for most B2B companies and for economic developers. They want to find companies that are at the point in which they're about to pull the trigger on a growth. And, you know, we had been greatly influenced in the past about these ideas that growth was driven by the industry that you're in or that it's predominantly um, a result of the location where you are, uh, that uh, there are more capital there or more ideas there, better people there, or it's a hotter industry and that sort of thing. And um, when I was in the field and working with literally hundreds and hundreds of companies on these projects, I didn't, I didn't really see those trends, even though that's what uh, so many of the people in economic development and, um, you know, direct market targeting were using were industries and size and things like that as indicators. I saw that, I saw that growth was really happening in, in all industries and in all sort of locations and that the, the only thing that I could tell the difference was that uh, the companies had been on a previous path of growth and that that's really what distinguished them. So after some time, I decided to take a sabbatical, come back to the University of North Carolina, get a PhD, and see if I could get the tools and a data set large enough to test what I'd seen in the field, which was that past performance of a company is a better indicator of its propensity to grow uh, in the short term and survive and have exceptional growth. Those are the three outcomes we look at. 
that um, past performance would be more important than industry or location. And we ran huge, huge regressions on massive data sets uh, involving hundreds of variables over uh, about a decade and uh, with the Institute and at the university. And we've proved that point. And so, you know, that's, that's sort of where we, we've hooked up uh, together, Jeff and Brennan, is uh, looking at sustained growth companies because those are the companies that, that seem to have the, the most, prob- most highest probability of survival growth and exceptional growth over the next five years. And what are the indicators that make those companies unique? What drives their growth? How can we identify them, get in front of them at the right time with the right message uh, on behalf of our clients? Gary, why why is the the word sustained growth? I mean, it's something that you. I think you taught Jeff and I, you know, uh, you know, many years ago about how you know, you know, the the big ribbon ribbon cutting events where you add, you know, thousand jobs or or the companies that grow from zero to a thousand, and you know, versus the people that are a sustained growth. Talk talk about why sustained growth is a part is a kind of an indicator of company health, if you could. Well, it's a it's a really good question because in the past, um, the scholars that have looked at growth, uh, company growth, and it's it, it can be the company growth can be measured as employee growth or sales growth. Sales growth is a bit more spiky and tends to be more manipulated by the company. Um, that's an indicator of demand, um, but it's 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 very um, very spiky and less directly controlled by the company. Whereas capacity or supply, which is employees, is proxy for it which is what we tend to use, is a bit more stable, and it's more intentionally changed by the company. So um, scholars that have looked at in the past at growth, um, they've looked at the amount of growth over time or the percentage of growth, how fast the company grows. And um, in study after study for decades, they've found that there's no real pattern. You can't really uh, predict who's going to grow next by looking at the amount of growth that they've had in the past or the percentage of growth. Um, and so scholars sort of stopped at that point. It was kind of a dead end. Uh, they came up with the idea that growth was random, randomly determined, because they couldn't they couldn't use past growth as a way to predict uh, who would grow in the future. <clears throat> and I it took a little bit of a different tact on it, and I came into it with the idea that growth is a learning process. You learn to grow, and so therefore, if you if you learn to grow. Uh, uh, the more times you do it, the better you become at it, and the more likely you are to do it again. So I started measuring growth not as the amount of growth or the percentage of growth, but the number of times a firm grows. And when you use that as a measure, uh, using time series, uh, multiple years of, of growth, uh, for, um, and we measured it for uh, more than 60 million business establishments that have been in existence in the U.S. since 1990, for-profit, non-profit, um, across the board, uh, we find that it is predictive. It, it predicts, it, it helps predict, it's not 100% predictive, um, but it is a strong predictive ability for future growth for the next five years, future survival, and exceptional growth. And you just don't get it within the other indicators. And, and in fact, when you look at it, it's, it's uh, 10 times more powerful than, than the industry that a company's in as a predictor. And it's 50 times more powerful than its location. So it is a strong predictor. And, and maybe help me define what sustained, when you say sustained growth, what, what does that mean? Well, we look at the number of times a, a company grows over a five-year period of time. That's our base level measure. Um, and we use five years because about um, – 
50% of the companies that are alive today won't be around in five years. Uh, five years is about the 50% die-off, the half-life, if you will, of the stock of companies in the economy. So it's a good a good natural uh, cutoff point. So we compare everybody that's five years or older, older and uh, we measure the number of times, number of years that they had uh, net employment growth uh, over the past five years, and sum those years up and subtract out the ones that they had negative growth in, they, they, they shrank. And if you had two or more years out of five, uh, you have sustained growth. And you'd be surprised how incredibly rare that is in the economy, that a company would grow two or more times net over the last five years is, is really rare. It's surprisingly rare. Well, let's talk about that because that, that's something that I don't think the average entrepreneur believes. They they believe they should grow, you know, you know, every year on the year. And maybe talk about how how rare is it that a company would grow through four out of five years or five out of five years? Well, when you when you look at even um, <clears throat> growth of of two out of five years, uh, you're only talking about between one and two percent of the business establishments in the economy. Um, so it's it's really it's 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 a rare phenomenon. It's one to two percent of companies in the economy. Um, are growing two out of five years. And when you look at the number of jobs that this subset in the economy generates, we've looked at it at the national level, we've looked at it at the state's level, um, and at the county level, and it's about the same proportion. You get about uh, 1.5% or so of the companies are generating over 60% of the jobs. So almost all the capacity, and these are lasting jobs, so they've been around for at least five years, and um, it's all concentrated within this this very potent subsector. When you every time you go up another year, so if you go from two to three out of three out of five years, for instance, it's one tenth of the number that was um, um, two out of five years. So it would be one tenth of one percent is three out of five, and then it's one tenth of that is four out of five. It's a power law, so that you get. Um, um, scale invariant distri- distribution. I won't bore you with that, but it's uh, essentially G- a, uh, explain a version it to me later. of the 80-20 rule. <laughs> hey, Gary, and, and, and rule essentially is where, where, you, where you get 20% of the 20% creates 80% of the 80% and up and down the scale. So it's very rare. So, so I mean, let, me, let me just beat this one because you're saying that, that, that there are 1% to 2% of the, of the businesses grow – Two out of five years, is there a certain amount of growth you require, you know, 10, 15, 20%, or is it just that they grew at all? Just that they grew at all. And, again, we're, we're looking at the, um, at the lowest level that you, you can analyze a business, which is at the establishment level. So about 85%, a little bit over that, 85% of businesses are single-location businesses. So everything that the business does is at one location. Um, and then we break up, for instance, a Starbucks or a Walmart into each individual store and look at those. And when you count all of those across the economy, and there's right short of 30 million in existence right now, yeah, you see about one, a little bit over 1% are responsible uh, for two out of five years of growth or about 65% of all the job creation in the economy. That's, that's unbelievable. Hey, I, I do want to – Gary, can I jump in? 
Maybe. You should have warned me. I was listening. <laughs> Go ahead. Go ahead. No, I was just just to that point, though, I thought one of the the points that you were making about incremental expansion is that enables firms to stay closer to their demand line, kind of reducing the chance to over or under be over or under capacity uh, in in their particular market. Is, is that, in fact, the case? That's exactly right. And, um, you know, when, you know, a, a lot of the analysis that's been done previous to this has used large government data sets that have been aggregated. We, we use a disaggregated data set so we can look at the track record of every individual company. And when you measure that, you're exactly right. Um, we see that companies that are able to grow multiple times in smaller increments, so they're adding capacity multiple times in smaller increments than, say, for instance, growing one time in a huge amount, um, they're much more likely to stay real close to what their demand is. Whereas if you um, go out and, let's say, uh, borrow a ton of money, through perhaps an economic development agency that's offering a low-interest loan program, and you build a ton of capacity all at once, you have really high exceptional relative growth or percentage growth, um, but you're much more likely to overshoot your demand. So you borrowed all this money, and the, the, the demand, the sales don't materialize in time. You still have to service your debt. So what happens is you're actually more likely to reverse the growth and shrink or go out of business. And we've known, scholars have known for 40 years that the more levered a firm is, the more likely they are to fail. And that is because a lot of companies use borrowed money to build too much capacity at one time and overshoot their demand line. It's exactly right, Jeff. <laughs> We are here with uh, Dr. Gary Kunkel, founder of Outlier LLC and research fellow at Business Dynamics Research Consortium based at the University of Wisconsin in Madison. Uh, you can follow this conversation on um, uh, hashtag the second stage, that's hashtag uh, the 2ND stage. And you can follow us on Twitter at evolutioncp, at evolution underscore cp. Sorry about that. Uh, so, so Gary, um, are you saying that uh, larger, larger non-high grows grow more frequently and adding more and and add more jobs, or or not? Well, um, the size doesn't really matter as much. So, we we see we see sustained growth among companies of of all sizes. Um, and it is, um, you know, if you're going to grow and you're bigger, if you're relatively larger, let's say you've got a thousand employees, when you grow, you do tend to grow in larger chunks. Um, so, you know, even a 1% growth on a thousand employee company is a, a, a substantial, you know, chunk of new jobs. But, um, but it's really about the number of times that they grow. And, and really this gets into, uh, the real, um, the real meat of the matter, which is what drives sustained growth within, within companies. What what, is, what are the processes that are going on inside the company that enable them to have sustained growth and to differentiate them from this other 99, 98% of the companies in the economy? And, and that's where I think um, the most insights are, particularly for, for managers, for CEOs. Um, and if you're an investor, you know, what kind of companies are you looking for? What are, what are the dynamics that you might be wanting to spot inside of a company to see whether or not it's really likely to continue to grow or not? 
Well, what are what are some of those activities that are going on inside some of these high grows that make them sustainable performers? Well, um, we've we've moved into a new phase in the research um, where we've we've gone out now and we've interviewed hundreds and hundreds of CEOs at both sustained growth companies and non-sustained growth companies, and we've asked them. Uh, literally hundreds of questions about their operations, how they make decisions, how they allocate resources, who they hire, how they hire, how they innovate, um, how they plan production, timing of their expansions, all of these sorts of questions. And now we've, we've started to see that there's a process inside the company that, that um, it really um, transcends all of the company's operations in different ways and it's a process of increasing returns. These are what we call virtuous growth cycles. And love to share that kind of insight with uh, <laughs> with your audience if you're interested. Because this is where we, we really think the meat is, what's driving it inside these companies. Yeah, and you, you've uh, given us a, a list of those, and, and uh, we'd certainly like to hear that. So one of those is leadership. Let's start with leadership. Well, when we start off with leadership, um, we see. Well, let me let me describe what a what a virtuous growth cycle is. So we can take all sorts of parts of the organization and we can look at them and we can say, you know, where do what is a virtuous growth cycle? So it really has really four points, four four parts. There's the intention to do something. There's the action itself. There's learning from it, and there's repeating. So we see this in all different parts of the organization. So if you think of anything in the organization where a company has an intention to do something, then when they do it, they're learning so that they're getting better, so that their efficiency to do it next time is actually improved. And therefore, like most human activities, the more times you do it, the more likely you are to do it again. You get a uh, repetition out of it. So um, one of the most easy, comprehensible ones we can think about is, for instance, HR. Um, we think about benefits in HR just as an idea. If you if you offer your employees profit sharing or, or a, a piece of the success of the company in financial terms, that tends to increase their productivity and increase their loyalty to the firm. What you've actually done is you've aligned their personal goals up with the goals of the organization. So they're, they're actually working harder on your behalf to help you grow. So by doing that, by increasing their motivation and their retention, you increase your probability of growth, which when you grow, frees up new resources to plow back into more benefits. So you get uh, a looping uh, a looping cycle here so that you, you've, you've reinforced the process and, and you've increased the probability that it will repeat itself. And we see that those kinds of loops throughout the organization um, in leadership, for instance, uh, which is the first one that you mentioned, we see that sustained growth companies, first of all, one of the things that really sets them about is they're very intentional in what they're doing. They have a plan. It's an articulated plan. It has a number usually attached to it, like we're going to grow by a certain amount at a certain time. That plan is communicated by the leadership deep within the organization and frequently. So the employees are um, very well aware that this is the organizational direction. This is what the organization wants to do. And the CEO is very active in putting that message out there. 
they also tend to decentralize power in the organization for decision-making and taking risk so that lower-level people are given the power to do things that would be to the objective of the organization according to the growth plan. By doing that, they're involved in the, the action and the learning. They get better at it every time they do it, and the cycle repeats. They hit the growth plan. The plan is updated again. It's recommunicated with the employee. They're re-empowered. They take more actions to do it again, and the growth continues. That's just another example of a positive feedback loop that we see or an increasing return cycle that we see um, throughout the organization. So, so uh, compensation is is a big driver. Uh, you know, trying to align interests to to uh, sustain growth. Are there other things that you're finding are attractive to employees for retention and and productivity? Um, yeah, quite quite a quite a number of things. And um, <clears throat> so, you know, everybody really wants a, a sense of purpose. I mean, most people that are pursuing a career. They, they want a sense of purpose in their life. They're not just out there just to earn a paycheck. And of course, compensation is important, but they want to feel like they're part of a team, part of a winning team, that they're making a contribution that's significant that, and that they as a person are developing, they're developing as a part of the success. And so that's why communication information is very important. The objectives of the organization, conveying that to the employees, and we're talking about all the way down to the entry-level employees. So many of the companies that we see that don't grow, they limit that communication just to senior management. And they're not telling that all the way down to the entry-level employees. And yet, it's that, it's that constant communication deep within the organization and the reward system going deeply within the organization where you see a differentiation. You know, um, Gary, I just want to tell you that we we do listen to you very, very carefully because we've included that concept in our five pillars of business freedom, which we talk to all of our partner companies about. And the fourth pillar is transparency, which goes to exact uh, issues that you're talking about, about including everybody in what's going on, making sure that they're seeing information and that they know how they fit within the organization and are compensated uh, as a result. And they feel valued and rewarded intellectually uh, because of that as well. Uh, I want to move on to uh, your second of your um, uh, virtuous growth cycle items, which was uh, HR. How does that play into the virtuous growth cycle? Um, yeah, we, we, were, we were talking about that a bit. I mean, all this, all this people component is part of it. Um, another part of it, of course, that um, is important is is really the kind of people that you bring on the team. And uh, we definitely see there's statistical differences, if you will, in the hiring practices of the companies that have sustained growth and the, the companies that don't. Um, they do a much more um, determined job uh, of a couple of things. One is identifying companies, uh, people, key employees, and bringing them on not only that they have the talent or the, the let's say the skills, the, the education or, you know, can you operate this lathe, but also that they, they fit with the culture of the organization. So that is a differentiation. So that there's a cultural fit and also that they have some kind of potential for supervisory um, ability. 
So they're constantly trying to bring in candidates, even for lower-level positions, even entry-level positions, that not only not only fit the job description, the technical, you know, here's the specs of the job, but that they have the, the attitude, they fit the culture, and that they have some kind of aptitude and interest in rising in the organization. So if you think about a company like a sustained growth company that is frequently expanding, where the bottleneck becomes is in supervisory positions and, and lower-level management positions. You can continue to add a lot of entry-level people, but if you don't have, if you, if you don't have the sergeants to, to manage the privates, um, it becomes chaotic. So you've you got to make sure that you're bringing in uh, the privates with the, you know, with the aptitude and the interest to become sergeants, uh, and then maybe get a field commission to extend the analogy up to management level. Uh, otherwise, the growth you'll have an extreme problem in continuing the growth. So it's all about bringing in the right people, <clears throat> keeping them focused, giving them the communications, giving them the incentive, sharing the information is what you said. And, um, and those create uh, increasing return cycles. So when you ask all companies across the economy, what's your two biggest problems? It's finding the right people and retaining the right people. And yet sustained growth companies through these HR communications, remuneration strategies, they have less of a problem with it than other companies, even though they need more, they need new people and they challenge the people more than other companies do. They have less, less of a problem because they're using these feed, feedback loops. Yeah, our third pillar in our five pillars, uh, Gary, is uh, right people, right seats. And you use core values to hire, fire, measure, and reward uh, the employees that you bring on, which sounds very similar to the findings of your research. Uh, you've, you've interviewed you know, thousands of companies uh, through all of your research, and you've looked at uh, incredible amounts of data. How, do you, how did you figure that out? I mean, what were, when, were you interviewing a lot of uh, CEOs and middle managers, or how are you getting that information to draw those conclusions? Well, we, we've, I've spent um, now about 16 years on this, um, and, you know, it's been a combination of a, a background um, before that, about 20 years of field experience, but then, you know, looking at large data sets and then going out in the field and doing a tremendous number of case studies. And uh, in research, it's called theoretical saturation. It's the point at which you don't need to interview another company to guess what the, <laughs> the next company is going to say because <laughs> you've heard the pattern so many times. Yep. And then essentially what you do is you embed that into a questionnaire um, and you ask, uh, you know, you do a really good job at sampling so that you're getting um, some of the companies that are on, you know, the, you know, the, the far end of the distribution on performance so they're super performers you get the ones in the middle and you get the ones that are really laggards and you collect enough of those and you run the statistics and you can prove out the points that you're seeing in the field. And that's essentially the method that, that we're using now. So I deal with big data sets. Uh, my spreadsheet that I, I deal with has got 28 billion cells in it. <laughs> <laughs> that's like mainframe stuff. Uh, so your third point on virtuous growth cycles is sales expansion. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Um, well, th there's kind of two two parts of this. So um, one we'll talk about geographical expansion. The other one we'll talk about branding, which I think I probably have on the list, but I'll bring it up here. So there's um, 
you know, you can, you can clearly see uh, a learning curve that's involved in geographical expansion. So a company starts off usually in um, local markets, and um, as they you know, start to saturate the local market, they're going to be looking for markets that are a little bit farther out. And, um, you know, you get to the first jump, and the first jump is how do I – support a customer that's beyond a drive away from my facility or how do I set up a sales office or a, or a production facility that is remote that's operating remotely so as you, as you guys know uh, as good as anybody that one of the biggest learning curves is is how do you open the the first remote operation and it's a huge thing it's a really huge thing but you've got to be able to do that <clears throat> let's say if you're a company operating on the east coast You've got to be able to do that and operate in, um, you know, the Midwest or in California, um, an extended operation before you're really going to be able to do a good job in, in opening one in a foreign market in England or in Germany or, or China or Japan or something like that. So what you see is a, is a, is a learning curve approach where um, company, most companies start off and they're really opti- uh, really, um, opportunistic. They'll take any sort of opportunity that comes along to sign up an agent or a distributor, or, or they'll get their buddy or somebody they know to operate the first office that they set up. And this often doesn't work nearly as well as they want to. And the more that they grow, they get um, a distribution network that ends up being a real hodgepodge. They've got distributors over here that aren't working that have one kind of profile and agents over here that are working that you know, have a different profile. And it, and it starts to get very confusing. And what a company will do is they'll go through a process where they, they try to rationalize that. They try to look at what has worked and what hasn't worked, pair back what hasn't worked, and start replicating what does work. And as soon as they start working, moving into replication strategy, that's when they really start to couple, couple into success because they have a, a blueprint of essentially this is the kind of people that we want. This is how we set it up. These are our control systems. This is how we put targets out there and reward systems. This is how we monitor them remotely, et cetera. And a company needs to be able to do that domestically really well before they can really go abroad and succeed. Now, it's not always true but it tends to be true. Um, and so, again, it becomes a learning curve where it's, rep- it's a repetition, it's a replication strategy, essentially. And the more times you do it, the better that you get and the more likely you are to do it again. Another part of that, which kind of comes into branding, is when you have success, tooting your horn increases the probability that you're going to have success again. So one of the things that we see, one of the questions that we've asked is, is who do you tell when you grow? So do you tell your current employees, potential employees, current customers, potential customers, suppliers, potential suppliers? We find out sustained growth companies tend to do that to all of these target markets, particularly prospective customers and prospective employees, which differentiates them from other companies. So they're going out in the market and they're telling people, we're growing because that's an indication that the market is favoring us, that whatever we offer in the market has high value and our customers are happy because they keep buying from us. That's why we're growing. And so prospective customers hear that. 
through all the noise in the marketplace, that signal comes through. It's an indication that you're competitive. And so better customers will be lining up and more receptive to you because you're growing, which then increases your probability of growing again. And on the hiring side, by broadcasting the fact that you're growing to better employee candidates, you have a better prospect, even with the same package and benefits uh, and pay package, you have a better prospect of hiring better talent because you're growing because better candidates will want to be on a winning team. So you'll have better people than your competitor and you'll have a better chance of growing. So then you get a feedback as well. So these feedback things, we're, we're constantly seeing these you know, these positive feedbacks. You do something that increases your ability uh, to do it again with even better gains and to repeat it again. So that's it. Those are great nuggets of information. You've got two more here on the virtuous growth cycles list. Uh, one is innovation and two is finance. How do they uh, play into this cycle? Well, one of the funny things that we found is that we, you know, you come from a, a traditional mindset, Jeff, and you think that sustained growth companies or companies that are highly competitive, they, they must be pouring tons of money into R&D. You know, we, we always hear that, you know, research and development is so important and whatnot. And we find out that it's, 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 that's not really the differentiator. I mean, you look, only one, one third of sustained growth companies spend more than the industry average, their, their self-reported industry average on R&D. So it's not because they're spending a great deal, you know, across the board, spending a great deal more money on formal R&D program. What you find as a differentiator is that they're doing uh, R&D, if you will, new product development, new high-margin product and service development in collaboration with their customers. That's really what sets them apart. So they're not doing it in the lab. They're not doing it in a divorce or an ivory tower away from the marketplace. They're doing it at the customer's side or in collaboration with the customer. They're leveraging the customer's insight to, to, to create a new product or services that better, even better meets the customer. And they're getting the customer to help tell them what's working and what's not. So they're setting up their beta, if you will, their beta sites at the customer's premise. And they're leveraging the customer's dollars. So the, the customer is actually committing, you know, idea, people, and money into the development of the new product and service. And the benefit of that is that you are constantly staying on the breaking edge of what the demand is out there as it's changing in the market. So we find the companies that do this, the sustained growth companies, um, they don't face this litany of real big problems and headaches that we see on non-sustained growth companies, which is constant changing demand, changing customer preference. Um, other companies are struggling with that. Sustained growth companies tend not to struggle with that as much because they're there with the customer trying to figure out how to develop new high-margin products and services in collaboration with the customers. And if they do that, so imagine that you do that with one of your key customers, and it works You know, as you work through the problems and the beta, the beta um, site becomes successful, you have a testimonial, and guess what? You get to toot your horn. So now you get to toot your horn in the in the market that you've got a new product and services. You've already tried it out on this well-known customer that everybody else in the marketplace knows and recognizes as a good customer, and that increases your probability of winning the next customer for your new product and service. So another feedback loop. 
That's great stuff. And uh, we are going to take a quick break uh, from the second stage. We're here with Dr. Gary Kunkel, founder of Outlier LLC and a research fellow at the Business Dynamics Research Consortium based at University of Wisconsin. When we come back, we're going to hear what Dr. Kunkel has to say about the top priorities of a CEO or founder when uh, running their business. Thanks for tuning in to the second stage. what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at Voice America TRN. This is Davis Love III, Ryder Cup captain and Team McGladry member. McGladry is about building relationships. That's the kind of team I want to be a part of, a team that builds deep understanding of each client's vision and unique way of doing business. The same attributes I look for and the partners I choose. It's this understanding that enables you and me to make confident decisions. When you trust the advice you're getting, you know your next move is the right move. This is the power of being understood. This is McGladry. Assurance. Tax. Consulting. Your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network shows and hosts are in your car, outdoors, and wherever you need them to be. Listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You are tuned in to The Second Stage. To reach the hosts or their guests today, call in to 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to thesecondstage at evolutioncp.com. Now, back to Jeffrey Cadlick and Brendan Anderson. Welcome back to the second stage. This is Jeff Cadlick, and I'm here with my partner, Brendan Anderson, as well as our guest, Dr. Gary Kunkel, founder of Outlier LLC and a research fellow at Business Dynamics Research Consortium based at the University of Wisconsin. And during the break, uh, Brendan and I were amazed at uh, some of the correlations that are coming out of Gary's wonderful research and the things that we're, we're working on here at Evolution Capital Partners. Uh, you can listen to this episode and our latest episodes on the Voice America business channel, voiceamerica.com. Uh, and you can certainly email us at the second stage at evolutioncp.com. I always want to thank our sponsor, uh, RSM, which is formerly McGladry, uh, the leading provider of assurance, tax, and consulting services focused on small and mid sized businesses nationwide with more than 6,700 people in 75 U.S. cities. So uh, we laugh, left the last segment with some, uh, some intriguing thoughts around what founders and CEOs of small businesses should be doing with your virtuous growth cycles, Dr. Kunkel. Yeah. I, <laughs> I hope we can help them, uh, help them in priority, prioritizing what they, what they need to do uh, tomorrow morning. So what would those priorities be? I mean, I realize you guys touched on a lot of different things. If you're the, the founder of a business and, and wanted, to, you know, wanted to kind of build a sustainable growth business that was going to make an impact in the world, find a purpose, what, you know, what, what, what are those CEOs doing and uh, what's their priorities? Well, you know, the, this, is, this is probably one of the, the biggest puzzles that's out there. Um, you know, when I, was, I, when I was working as the, uh, the economist and resident at Inc. Magazine, you know, one of the, one of the challenges that we always, we always had is this thought that 
uh, you know, a CEO wakes up in the morning and there's, there's a hundred things that they could do, but they only have time really to make a solid contribution on one or two, two of those things. Where do they, you know, how do they prioritize it? What, what are the few things that really make, make the most difference? It's really going to move the needle. And what we're trying to do with these virtuous cycles is, is show that there are certain kind of activities that a CEO can pursue in the organization that are going to have fundamentally more importance on their ability to grow their business than, than others. And, you know, we've, we've talked about some of the very top things here that are the most important. It's, you know, in, 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 in some ways, it sounds like an old rehash of sort of the, you know, management 101. But it's, it's deeper than that because what we're seeing now is that this isn't just sort of old wives' tales that says that these things are important. They're important now we see um, in sort of a list, in a priority list. They're important because they create positive feedback loops in the company. And if you do them in such a way that they do, create these positive feedback loops, you are more likely to grow and you're more likely to grow again and again and again, especially if you're intent on making sure that everybody in the organization is learning how to do a better job so that the next time they do it, they'll be better at it. So things that we, we've talked about uh, from the beginning are setting a plan, having a number on that plan. And we're not talking about writing a business plan. We're, t- we're talking about writing a growth plan. So this organization is going to grow by a certain amount, by a certain time, because we're going to exploit this kind of marketplace and making sure everybody in the organization is on board with that, that they understand it, that they're a walk, you know, they're, they're talking the talk and walking the walk, um, that you as a CEO are walking around the organization, making sure that everybody, even at the bottom level, is, is understanding this and is empowered to make their own decisions as long as they're in line with the objective of the organization and that they'll be rewarded for that. So if they're doing good and they're doing good by the organization, they'll be rewarded for it. That creates a virtuous cycle. Um, That your guys that are um, gals that are out in the marketplace looking at demand, that they're hooking up with the customers and thinking about how do we create new products and services to better serve the customers, the great customers that we have um, and, and trying to work with the, these customers to create these products and services. When you get the success, broadcasting that back into the marketplace, because that's what's going to drive, that's going to differentiate you and all the noise of the marketplace to bring new customers in. When you're hiring the right people, making sure that they fit the, uh, the culture of the organization, that they want to grow into more responsibility in the future, and they'll, they'll grow with you. Um, these kinds of things. Um, uh, yeah, on one level, they, they look very um, like a traditional list. But on the other hand, if you think about they're not one-dimensional, they're, they're repetitive and building and improved upon all the time. I think it's a different way to look at it. It is. Hey, Gary, I, I, the, um, I, I love this point that you make, too, in, in some of your material is, is you know, these, these uh, sustained growth companies, do, you know, do they tend to operate on their own or do they tend to kind of go out and find and operate and work with other kind of growing um, innovative companies? Well, you know, really from an economic development perspective, I, I think that this is one of the, the most intriguing idea is that um, 
I think that these companies are creating value chains across the economy where you got the best companies are aligning with the best companies. <clears throat> and they're doing that. They're doing that partially intentionally and par- partially sort of by instinct. Um, the instinct is this. Um, you, your company, Evolution, Evolution Capital, you've got a limited amount of time and a, little about, a limited amount of resources to go find clients, uh, companies to invest in, investors to uh, to to um, join your fund um, because you know it's a limited amount of time there's a lot of noise in the marketplace and people are out there some of them are receptive to your message and some aren't by broadcasting your success you magnify your signal in this noisy marketplace which increases the probability that somebody's looking for you is going to find you and hook up with you and they, in turn, are generally trying to do the same thing in their marketplace. And because the best tend to have the best signals because it's full of content that says, I'm growing and I'm really competitive, they tend to align with each other. And so we get that across all different industries because people are buying and selling things, not in this old-fashioned idea that industry clusters and all the companies have got to be in the same industries. That's not the way the world works. These companies are buying and selling across industry lines, and they're but they're aligning. The better companies are aligning with the better companies because of the signaling and this natural attraction. So they are. And then you get the customer collaboration, which further strengthens these these ties um, from one one company to another. So if you kind of think about a three dimensional space, kind of a topography, if you think about sort of like, uh, let's say, the Appalachian Mountains. You got on the ridges, along the ridges are all these sustained growth companies aligning themselves. And in the valleys, you have this valley of death where uh, where the companies that really aren't competitive can't quite make it up onto the ridge and are down there in the lowlands floundering around. And I think that that's really the way the economy is lining up. And uh, so we want to do a better job in tracking that and, and understanding that, mapping it, so that policymakers and CEOs can make, you know, take advantage of that, find their customers better, to amplify their signal better. Let's shift. Let's shift away to the policymakers, kind of the public policy, and you know, you would think that. You know, it, you know, you and I have had over maybe a couple scotches or something talked about, you know, how frustrating it is where where the public dollars go. And maybe that was me that was drinking the scotches and complaining. I can sometimes have a hard, hard time remember. It gets a little blurry I, eventually. Well, right? I can guarantee you I was doing. It. I know that Gary was chiming, chiming in, but I suspect he was. So where? So you know, what, what can what can the public policy? What can they do about all this stuff? Because you would think that this is this is compelling evidence, and they'd be able to find a policy that would work. Well. You know, the, the funny thing is, and, and we just completed a very large-scale um, a project for, um, for a state that will be uh, published here pretty soon. And one of the things we've, we looked at is what, what can the state do um, to, to better improve the situation for sustained growth in their region. And number one, and this plays right to you guys and right to this, right to this broadcast, is the number one thing that the CEOs out there want is they want best practices. They're out there. They tend to be out there operating on their own, you know, uh, lost in the wilderness of, of too much information that you can't tell what the quality is. You know, who's, who's a talking head to listen to? Um, you go to the bookstore and you look at a ton of business books and they're all about multinationals or things that don't apply. The question for them is, if you're only 1% or 2% of the population or you want to be in that, 
is what what are these guys learned? What are the best practices that set them apart? And so number one is just trying to pull together these insights and get them into the hands and the brains and, you know, the schedule of the CEOs that want to put them in action. Believe it or not, that's the number one. So there's it's information asymmetry. Some people know it and some people don't know it but need to know it. And we need to solve that problem. And so a lot of that is is trying to bring it together, codify it, and share it. And another is trying to create peer networks so these companies can come in and talk to each other. And we think also along that line they'll be sharing best practices, but they'll also be strengthening supplier and customer relationships and collaboration, which will create these, uh, you know, strengthen these linkages, regional linkages we, we just talked about where they align with each other. You know, so Gary, one of the things that I've noticed, and I'd be curious to get your reaction, is when, when we talk to some CEOs that they're hes- you know, they're hesitant. You know, they they think, well, that'd be interesting. And, and I put myself in the in the same category. It's like when you first hear a best practice, you kind of roll your eyes and say, I'm not really sure that'll work. It's not really until you see the other CEOs in like a YPO or EO or Vistage group that's that, that's doing it, and they're they're almost always successful. And it's like, how do you? You know, it's almost like, is it a peer network, or is it or is it really just getting the information out there and having them? identify with it well i you know i have sat at countless of these um, you know these these ceo seminars at inc magazine at build and entrepreneur magazine as well where they they have these big events and they're full of ceos there's 500 ceos in the audience and you get six or so of the ceos up on the stage that are are telling about their story of how they've used these insights these kinds of insights to solve problems, real hard problems at their organization. And you look across the audience and all these grizzled old CEOs are sitting out there with their eyes wide open as saucers because they're absorbing this stuff. And they go, gosh, that's the problem that I face. And I thought I was the only one that had that problem. And yeah, he's talking about this, you know, person on the staff he's having this problem with. And I have, I've seen that exact problem, you know, and, and it's one thing for a management consultant or somebody else on the outside to go in and describe a problem and a solution. It's another for a CEO to explain it to another CEO. I think that they're just much more receptive to another CEO bringing the message. But without a tight control, tight control, without guidance on the content so that the discussion stays on point, that, I think that that is the key point, is you, you, you want to make sure that that interchange has value, that, that the agenda is tight enough that you're getting to these issues that are really the crux of the matter, and, and we don't end up just having some kind of random jawing ses- session out there. I've seen a lot, of the, a lot of these programs, they dissolve in that way, and that's, that's unfortunate. Yeah. But if you have these people on point, it really can make an impact, I believe. We well, Gary, you're going to find this hard to believe, but we've actually talked the entire hour, uh, and uh, I know you're not excited. You're, I know you're not surprised, but we really appreciate you, you, you joining us. I honestly would love to have you back and just, you know, talk about some of the data. It, it's uh, it, it's over, it's overwhelming. It supports some of the things that we, you know, we intuitively believe because we see it every day. And uh, you know, thank you, thank you very much for joining us. Great fun. Thanks, guys, for asking me. And uh, Jeff, you have any wrap up comments on the, over there? Well, I always just want to remind everybody that we want to provide actionable advice and have you continue the dialogue with comments and questions on our blog at evolutioncp.com and have passion for possibilities. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to the second stage. 
Thank you for tuning in this week to The Second Stage. Please join Jeffrey Cadlick and Brendan Anderson again next Monday afternoon at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. And have a successful week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.